This episode of Troxel Podcast is supported by Twin Motion, the simple, real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery, client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. My name's Evan Troxel. And in this episode, I welcome Tom Kleischkens. Tom is a Belgian living in New Zealand. He's currently a product manager in Trimble's design and engineering division, where he heads the computational design group. Tom and his team joined Trimble via an acquisition of his software company called Matter Machine in 2017. Matter Machine's product, called Materia, is a computational design engine that has its roots in the visual effects industry. Tom studied civil engineering but went rogue and spent a decade doing visual effects for feature films, which is where the ideas that he's pursuing today were born. His claim to fame is having simulated the digital lava that killed Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We talk a little bit about that during the episode. Does this sound interesting? Definitely. In this episode, Tom and I talk about his circuitous path to Trimble, computational design as designing logic versus shape or form, the difference between incentives during the process of creating a film versus a building, building tools that others will show the true potential of, and so much more. So without further ado, I bring you Tom Kleischkens. Tom, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, Tom, I think Clifton is the one who introduced us. Clifton Harness from TestFit. He introduced. He said, "Evan, you got to meet Tom." And uh, and then we we've obviously talked since then, and and found that we have kind of this mutual history in the you way more than me on the visual effects side of things. And like, and what I mean by that is this was like your proper career. For me, it was more of a, a circuitous path to where I am now and not at all at the scale and expertise that you have. But it was fun to reminisce on that. And I thought maybe we could talk about that from, as they say, origin story of how you started out and got into visual effects. And, mm-hmm. and maybe we'll eventually get to where the kinds of things that you're doing now with computational design. And But that path on how you got to where you are now, is wow, what a circuitous path to get to that point. So... Maybe you could take us back and, and we can hear about some of that because it's, it's really fun. Yes. So it's, it's been a circuitous path. I think a lot of people in the, in the VFX industry, especially around, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, didn't really have a, a standard career path towards that. So we were kind of a, a ragtag bunch uh, back in the day. But yes, it, I, I started off as, as a civil engineer and I, I sort of realized um, I, was, I was lacking the creative aspect in my studies. So I started playing around with computer graphics fairly early on. I remember doing a summer job somewhere uh, for a genetic engineering company where I was canning seeds or something like that. And that got me enough money to buy a um, Power Mac back then. And I played around with KPT Bryce and, and a few other programs, uh, which are more seasoned listeners might remember (laughs) that interface just pops right into my head with like the ball with the with the four arrows on it where oh yeah just the the kpt bryce the kpt power tools photoshop plugins like all that stuff was just so fun to play with loved it loved it you know i even did 
uh, you know, prototypical image with a with a chrome ball and the, you know, the whole thing. Right. So anyway, that got that got me started. And then, actually, how did it happen? Yes. Yeah, so, so I I heard about this thing. Yeah. So, so I was working in a, in a cyber cafe as well. And and these guys somehow put their hands on an indie, which is sort of silicon graphics machine. Mm-hmm. And and they showed me this thing. Uh, um, what was it Alias? Right. Uh, and I played around with that a little bit, but then. What happened, it was just around a time where, where Maya was being sort of pre-launched beta alpha. And they they were doing a demo in Brussels. I'm from Belgium, by the way. So if you know Belgium a little bit, there's Brussels in the middle and then there's some other towns. One of the, town, uh, one of the towns is Ghent. Advise your listeners to go, to go visit. Fantastic town. Awesome. Anyway, so it's, it's about 50 kilometers uh, away from Brussels. And so I took the train there uh, for this Maya demo. And... I mean, you've got you've got these magical moments in, in in your life where you know what you see is is sort of indistinguishable from magic, and this was one of those moments. Oh. Uh, I had a couple of moments. Yeah, I had a couple of moments uh, uh, like that before, especially with silicon graphics machines, where I just did not understand. You know, I was technically uh, minded, and I I played with computers all my life, but. That just blew my mind. I was like, how is this possible? Anyway, so so they showed me Maya, and I was I was just blown away uh, this was so much better than anything i had seen before you know they showed animations and particles and and uh, inverse kinematics and all of that was running so so smoothly in, in in that application anyway so come comes the end of the night and my last train back to Ghent was gone and uh, i had to find a way back home and so i asked the guys well, is, is anybody from Ghent here i say yeah yeah our office is actually in Ghent." Um, so why don't you come along? And, uh, I remember I had a job offer when we arrived in Ghent. <laughs> Just through the conversation on the way home. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, come, come and, you know, you can be an intern for a little bit. And so say I was working for Ailey's Wayfront for, for about five years after that, uh, beta testing Maya. Uh, I remember going to Paris and to the Paris office and, and testing Maya over there. It was a lot of fun anyway. So. That started my career in VFX. You know, inevitably, you sort of fall into one, one, one or two or three categories. And with Maya, of course, you, you know, the, the, the apex of what you can do is, is sort of uh, visual effects for, for big production movies. So I heard about this project that was going on in New Zealand. I was like, hey, I'd like to go to New Zealand. <laughs> so my wife and I, um, my, my, uh, we were just married. So my wife and I just traveled to Southeast Asia. And then we made a little hop to New Zealand, which actually turned out not to be such a small hop because from Belgium to New Zealand, when you're in Thailand, you're only halfway to New Zealand. So we took this massive hop to New Zealand and spent a bit of time here. And, and at, the end, at the end of the trip, we just knocked on, uh, on the door at Weta. And that was the time where you, you, you still got a tour when you knocked on the door. It was just and a house. Just to set the <laughs> stage, the like Weta, what just let everybody know in case they don't know what yes. might end up yeah and what you ended up working on there just to tease sure. where, where you're going with this so this big project was lord of the rings of course so lord of the rings uh, is made here locally in new zealand uh, and there's a, a vfx a visual effects company that makes both the practical and physical and sorry digital effects uh, it's called weta weta digital weta is a, is a, a new zealand insect i look it up w-e-t-a and so, so I knocked on the door of Weta, and usually these 
you know, today you need to go through three layers of security yeah, right you, there. You to have, just, have top secret clearance nowadays, right? Yeah. <laughs> they brought me in and uh, I, I knew a couple of people there. I had, I had emailed in advance. So I walked in and basically spent the day there uh, sitting at people's desks and talking about the project. And yeah, obviously decided oh, I really wanted to work there. It's just, again, one of those magical moments, right? Where you say, how is this possible? Because this was just before the first movie came out. Nobody knew what was coming, right? And, and I was like, you know, it was clear to me that it was going to be absolutely game-changing. And uh, I wanted to be part of it. So it took, it took a while after that, but I, I, I ultimately got a job you know, just in the beginning of the second movie. So I worked on the second and the third Lord of the Rings movie. It was a lot of fun. And that sort of set the stage for the rest of my career. You know, you have to understand that I came from a civil engineering background, um, really interested in, in tinkering with physical things. And, and so I veered out of that into a purely digital sort of career, pushing pixels to the screen, essentially, not, nothing to do with physicality whatsoever, the physical object. And so after 10 years of that, I was lacking the physical aspect. And so at, at the end of that, the maker movement sort of uh, was in full swing, or at least trying to be in full swing. Didn't really go where people thought it would go, but it was definitely sort of peaking at that point, you know, maker fair and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and it, you know, I was, I was really interested in, in sort of 3D printers and um, laser cutting because it had the, the sort of very digital side to it. Uh, but at the same time, it, you know, you were able to express yourself uh, physically. So I started experimenting at that, but we could talk about the rest of my VFX career because it, it, it wasn't just Weta. But at the end of that 10 years of, of VFX, I sort of veered back into wanting to do something uh, with my hands, creating physical products, essentially. This was sort of sped up by an encounter. Uh, at that time, I was working for Sony, uh, Sony Imageworks in Culver City. Um, so I spent about four years in LA or so working for, for the film industry there. And on my way home, the, there was a gallery there in Central Culver City by a gentleman called Greg Fleischman. So owned by Greg Fleischman. Now I'll, I'll send you the link and uh, put it in the, in the comments on the, on the podcast. But Greg is a modern day geometer. Uh, Geometry. I mean, sometimes compared to a modern day Da Vinci, but you know, he's he's really just focusing on geometry, uh, very much of an architect in the conceptual sense. Um, so he, he doesn't make buildings you can properly live in, but if you go to a site, you, he, he does make these amazing structures. As a matter of fact, uh, people might know him from the pyramid at um, Burning Man. One of the years there was this massive pyramid mm -hmm. uh, that was Greg Fleischman's work. Oh, I was there and that so, year. That I, oh, there I, you go. I experienced that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, how was it? Because it was I wasn't amazing. there. Yeah, the yeah. the temple, right? That was the what uh -huh. they, they call right. the temple, temple insulation, yeah. and uh, that's right. And it had this, you know, large stone assemblage inside, like these balanced stones, and and it was it was a very spiritual place. People went there with reverence, right. and they kind of made their offerings of whatever they wanted to offer in there, and it was very much a, a it was a very solemn space, and. At the end, mm -hmm. you know, you make all these offerings and then you go through the process, they burn it and then the offerings are let go and yep. it, it kind of completes that cycle of whatever it is that you're doing there, whether it's mourning or, or you know, 
excitement or like anything it's you're you're letting it go and 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 it's not in your control anymore and and i think that it's it was fantastic and the way that the structure itself was made out of slotted and tabbed kind of plywood very much a a machine driven construction typology from a like a cnc standpoint Uh, and the way that it filtered the light and created space was fantastic Yeah. yeah yeah Well, that, that's great for you, and 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 I agree. I, I I've been to Burning Man uh, twice, and and went through that process, and went into the temple, and felt that that incredible uh, energy that that's there, and that you you can find nowhere else, to be honest. And or very hard for me to find, say, in a church. Uh, mm-hmm. You could find it there in, in a much more intense way, and it's not not because we uh, we were on drugs or anything like that. Just just really sort of a, a very uh, spiritual place in a modern sense and just amazing energy and then and then the, the burning of it you know whatever you think about it uh from a from an ecological point of view it's it's incredibly cathartic it's a beautiful space anyway so he he yeah he built a temple but there's a whole history behind that as well so i, I actually went to burning man with him many years before and it's there that the organizers and we built this small structure uh which was very basic, basically two by fours, and uh, and then this node that Greg had made that you could find in the temple. Actually, I don't know if you've looked at that node. Mm-mm. It's it's sort of six pieces of ply, mm-hmm. identical, identically cut, and you can sort of shake them into one node, and then you can plug two by fours into sort of the all the corners of it in all directions, uh, vertically or diagonally. So okay. it's this amazing piece that's. That's just cut from one square, uh, one square pattern uh, that you can just slot together and, and build this incredibly strong structure from. Absolute genius. <laughs> so anyway, so he had built sort of a very small pyramid. Um, I can send you some pictures of that as well. Uh, it's like a two-stage pyramid that was maybe three meters high or something like that with these nodes and these two by fours and then strung some uh, cloth in between. It caught the attention of the organizers of Burning Man. And that's where the conversation started. And I think it was maybe three, four, five years later that, that he built a temple after that. Anyway, so he got me onto sort of, he got me back into that physical space, right? Where I was thinking about architecture, where I was thinking, because I had had, by the way, run-ins with architects uh, during my engineering studies. I courted sort of the architectural space a little bit in Belgium. I even... I think I, I remember teaching Jean Nouvel's son, Maya. <laughs> this is a random thought that comes into my mind. But we had some interactions with architects back then as well. Anyway, so Greg kind of brought me back into that mindset. And so I spent my, you know, every time I came, uh, I drove home on my bike. I stopped there for a half hour, had a conversation, looked at what he was doing, and, and sort of slowly started thinking about my own projects that I wanted to do. And then uh, we moved back to New Zealand. Uh, we had our first kid, and I had a bit of space to sort of try to make that a reality. So I started a furniture business here in New Zealand, which is the worst idea because it's too small market for it. But, but I experimented with CNC cutting uh, with numerical control machines. So I was doing design, digital design in the morning, and then physical design in the afternoons. It was just an amazing time. Probably happiest time of my life. Um, so, so it was a terrible idea, or maybe not. <laughs> maybe you're right. <laughs> yeah. As a furniture business, it, it was not. I mean, I think I broke even, but you know, I didn't make any uh, serious money whatsoever. But I did a few designs, 
And, and it's out of that that sort of the software ideas started emerging. And so I, I again, flip-flopped from that physical space into the digital space. I was like, okay, well, you know, there's this whole maker movement situation coming on. How can we, how can we, and it's failing. It's how can we en- enable businesses to sort of leverage that momentum and create product lines that are sort of maker inspired, but still economically viable. And I should have immediately thought about the construction, uh, so the AEC space, but I didn't. Uh, so I was looking at products. One company that sort of was in that space that really needed a little push that had these maker tenants so that, that was following the, the maker tenants where every, every sort of product they made was, could be customized. So it's sort of the mass customization idea, right? Where if you have a numerical control machine that makes your product, uh, it's not a lot more energy to make every piece custom than it is to make every piece the same, right? So part of the idea around the, the maker movement is that you could create businesses around that concept, mass customization. So this surfboard company approached me and we, we, we basically just symbiotically existed for the, the next five years or so, where they funded us a little bit. We would write software so that they could build an interface for surfboard designers to customize their their cores and also their their layup. So the the laminates that go around the core, the foam core, the boards. And so we we built that application and we built it in a fairly generic way. And that that's what became uh, the Mana Machine technology and a Mana Machine uh, company. So we built this interface that was catered to sort of less technical. People like surfboard designers. Surfboard designers are used to sort of um, take a foam core and with physical templates, like shave off and cut off layers of that core and just massage the board into, into shape. And, and they kind of tweak their templates over time. Um, so uh, although the industry was slowly migrating to, so to have um, at least some element of, say, CAD, to it where templates were actually cut from CAD files. That was still sort of the early days of that. But we built this interface that was super user-friendly, like for non-technical users. And, and it, you get a lot of these configurators, right? Even back in, the, in that day, you know, a lot of products were putting configurators online. Think about the Nike one, maybe you can think of a few. But they, they're generally fairly cosmetic, just, just really just uh, presenting a pretty image to the user. What we wanted to do was bridge sort of the divide between, you know, compelling user experiences, which is sort of my film industry experience, mm-hmm. and and sort of the 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 fabrication aspect of things, where where the cut files need to come out on the other end to feed into numerical control machines like robots and laser cutters and tree printers. Uh, so we wanted to have a single model that catered to both. And, and it's, that's sort of <laughs> the story of my life, really, uh, certainly up to this point. And so, so we built this, this application that did that. Um, it presented sort of a pretty interface, easy to use interface to surfboard designers where they could tweak their boards every year a little bit, create new boards, design sort of efficiently and, and in a fun way including, say, decals on the boards, fin selections, you know, all the types of boards that you 
would want. Uh, so there's just a ton of options that you could put in there. And on the other end came out a highly accurate engineering model. And I remember we had to solve quite complex problems. Like for example, the layups. The layups are basically just sheet material, right? And some of it is fairly thick and rigid and you have to bend it around a foam core. And so that requires fair, fairly complicated math to sort of decide where to cut the, um, the layer so that it, it can bend around a, a complex shape. And so we had all that solved. Uh, and, and so that got me into from sort of the pixels to screen uh, scenario to sort of the pixels to actual physical materials, which is a whole different ballgame. That got me into that space. It was a lot of fun. Anyway, so, so that, that went well, and um, that got us funded through sort of the, the first phases of our uh, software. And so while we were doing that, we were making sure that the application remained general purpose. So it, that it wasn't purely built to do surfboards, but that it could do jewelry, shoes, guitars, building products, et cetera, et cetera. Although we didn't really get into the building product. And I, I beat myself up about this so much because, you know, half, you know, five years down the line, four or five years down the line, I was like, damn it, that there, there is an industry out there in which every made product is, is, is pretty much custom. And that's the, the construction industry, right? Like every, <laughs> you know, unless you, you know, you're doing full on prefab, um, you know, if you think of a house, pretty much every, aspect of, of the house is custom, you know, this, this windows are sized in a custom fashion. I mean, yeah, I don't have to tell your audience that. So I was like, that, that's really the industry we should be do, going after. And so that's what sort of pivoted us into a different mindset. And that, that landed us at Trimble. But I want to stop here a little bit. Like, yeah. <laughs> some questions. Yeah. I, I, go I, on for there's so many, so many directions we could go. I, I, I think that, you know, something that's really interesting to me is that Okay, so in the visual effects industry, I think a lot like the architectural industry, which I think is mm-hmm. different than this the matter machine model that you're talking about now, which is right. because I was involved in visual effects as well. I used to go to the LA motion user group meetings and watch, you know, somebody dissect how they did a project in After Effects and Media One Hundred and they would stay up all night. It was very like architectural in that sense, is from from an educational mm-hmm. standpoint, where it's like we will stop at nothing to get this output that we're looking for. And like you said, deliver an experience to an audience. And that there's very much kind of a culture of do whatever it takes in the visual effects industry. Yeah. yeah. In the film industry as a as a whole, right? It's like there's they're big budgets, they're short burn time frames. It's like cram as many hours and automations and pipelines and workflows into that as possible. And yep. we'll, we'll like, like tons of stuff. I can't, it's unbelievable the amount of data that they push through on a daily basis. So in that way, it's, it's very much like an architect's point of view, which is, I actually, I have two minds about this, but it's very much like, okay, it's a messy process and we're okay with that because it's mm-hmm. the, it's the end result that matters. It's the final result of experience by the actual user of the building that really matters of course, there's so many other layers of complexity on top of that. From the other point of view, though, we are incentivized to spend as little time as possible on said project, and we buy off-the-shelf software to accomplish it. 
And so in this way, it's very different from the visual effects industry, which is writing custom software all the time to accomplish certain goals within the pipeline, maybe to, you know, like you can see it so clearly with a company like Pixar, where every two or three years at the old cadence of film releases, there was some new technology that they were really showing off. It was hair and fur. It was water. It was environments. It was very specific to like, you know, it was character animation. It was facial animation. It was, it was all that. It was very specific. It's like we are going to push the boundaries in this way on this project, and we will stop at right. nothing to do that. And so we will write our own custom software, and we will use a, prog- a product like Maya, but we will customize the hell out of it to make it exactly what we need it to be to accomplish this task. And then we'll build on that on the next one, and we'll build on that on the next one. Until it gets to the point, I'm guessing, I've never been inside of Pixar, but you know, it, let's say that they did use Maya, you wouldn't be able to recognize it as Maya anymore. It would be like the Pixar version of, but it's still getting kind of this underlying framework updates by a, a different company. So, yep. so like I said, I'm kind of of two minds, and I, and I feel like you've, you've experienced them both as well, adjacent to architecture, which is in the film industry, which is you know stop at nothing to accomplish the task, and then you're doing it. It matter machine where you're like peop, surfboard designers don't want to waste a bunch of material iterating on a new board every month, but they might be willing to do that once a year, right? So, which yeah. I think is a much more of an architectural way to do it as well. Like there's so oh, much, yeah, yeah. there's so much embedded knowledge in this kind of this work plan that we have and the way we're going to do it is still based on the way we did it last time. We're just going to tweak one little thing. And we're, that's our level of innovation within AEC is a little thing, every project and projects are years long. And sometimes there's, you know, depending on the size of the firm, there's lots of projects going on potentially at the same time, but they're not necessarily talking to each other. And so anyway, I, I just think that that's kind of an interesting, maybe thing to throw back into your side of the conversation here, which is, What's your experience with that in from the visual effects standpoint of of there's you you don't say no you just go 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 and then there's this other side of things where you're delivering software for other designers to use with less of a willingness to experience the waste in that process like oh man like materials cost money <laughs> so so I mean what what what's your kind of general sense about those two different worlds I think that might be less different than you might think. I mean, obviously, the the, the waste aspect is tied to the physicality of, uh, of things, but there's also a, a waste, an economy of, of time associated with professions like, like architecture that might be quite different from, from what happens in the VFX. So the parameters are different in VFX. You have these super hard deadlines, mm-hmm. right? Super hard. It needs to be out. At Christmas, you know, right. it's just, there's no way around it. Yep. Whatever happens, Can't it's going it. to be out at Christmas. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, COVID threw that uh, spanner in that works. But let's say um, back in the day, that was the case. And so you have these enormous pressures and sort of everything, all the the blockers are, are sort of eliminated just by the sheer budgets that are associated with that sort of risk and that sort of deadlines, right? Um, so for example... Weta, Weta had the largest compute center in the Southern Hemisphere. It might still be today, actually. They had the largest set of computers and, and data storage 
in the southern hemisphere period mm-hmm. uh, that that's a sort of yeah uh, investment they were willing no, to yeah, investment to yeah, accomplish exactly. their task Absolutely. yeah right but there was also an understanding okay so and this this relates to the 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 sort of computational design aspect uh, of my life where where they really understood the value of compute very early on right and and so Maybe we're diverging a little bit from your question here, but I think it might be an interesting aside. So, so early '90s, I think it was early '90s, right? Jurassic Park. Yeah, like '93. Yeah, yep. yeah. So, so by the way, there's this really interesting uh, new series on Netflix called "The Movies That Made Us." Mm. The movies that made us uh, watch watch the Jurassic Park one. That's that's sort of the this, the the spark in the the computer graphics story of of the film industry, if you want, computer graphics side of the of the the, the film industry. Um, so in Jurassic Park, you know, it took one animator months to animate one character. Uh, it was incredibly time intensive to render these things. Uh, there were basically developers working on these on these rigs. And, and so come end of the nineties, you know, when when Lord of the Rings starts to get, you know, in production, uh, they want to do entire armies. So tens of thousands of characters on screen. You can't do that a classical way anymore, right? You can't have an animator animating 10,000 characters by hand. You know, it just doesn't work. So something's got to give. And again, under under these gigantic pressures and with these enormous budgets, suddenly you can build a compute center and you can leverage compute to do the work of an animator, to do the work of a modeler. But for that, you need a new set of tools. Um, You need to have computational design tools. You need to have a tool that that doesn't let you directly model things. Of course, you still have that as well, uh, or directly animate things, but that you give logic to, and you design the logic. So the interface is designing logic and rules, and then the computer goes and animates those characters, right? So this, this is sort of a new layer in between. And if you understand what com- uh, what compute can do for you, that's the logical next step. You just develop these pieces of software that allows you to develop, develop that logic. And so the most famous one, of course, is, well, now the most famous one is Houdini. I don't know if your uh, audience would be familiar with that. Uh, Houdini's sort of taken the, the visual effects industry by storm, especially the last decade. But... That was the case uh, back in the end of the 90s. It was a very old product already, a uh, very mature product already. And then, of course, Massive. Massive was the application that was used to animate all the armies. That's the application that allowed you to build a, a, you know, an orc's brain. And that included vision into the... Um, they literally rendered a little vision rectangle for every character in the army to make decisions... Uh, um, uh, you know, to let let the character make decisions by itself, of course, as on the compute center. So that allowed you to go from a handful of characters in a movie to hundreds of thousands of characters in a movie. And that's what was required to uh, support the stories and, and sort of the Peter Jackson grand vision, as we all know. Peter Jackson being the director of Lord of the Rings, by the way. Um, so that importance of compute sort of carries over to... AEC and and with a decade delay, I think AEC is also starting to see the value of compute. Uh, you know, you, you see the emergence of of the 
the computational designer as an actual role in an architectural firm because they've understood that uh, automation and compute are becoming a key element in sort of the process, right? Because you need to solve these more and more complex problems. Building's getting more and more complicated. And you can't just go do that the classical way by hand, drafting everything. It just doesn't work. So, so you have this sort of new profession that instead of modeling or drafting things directly, sort of writes logic and the logic then goes and drafts things, right? So you have this layer in between, this sort of meta layer. And that's exactly what we were doing with Mana Machine as well. And so, so th- there's strong parallels there. And yes, sure, the parameters are different between the two situations, but it's largely sort of the same shift that's happening, this sort of meta shift um, from designing geometry to designing logic. And that's sort of my life story in a, in a way. <laughs> Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor. Now, you've probably heard of Zaha Hadid Architects. They're one of the world's best-known firms, and when it comes to innovation, they're big fans of pushing boundaries. The team at ZHA has started using Twinmotion, a simple, real-time ArcViz tool that lets you instantly visualize ideas and clearly communicate them to stakeholders. ZHA designer Marco Margetta says that the benefits of using Twinmotion for the designers are the simplicity of the interface, the playfulness with which you can articulate your scenes, and not having to worry about all the technical aspects that real-time usually brings, like light maps, PBR workflows, and other technical details. Marco also loved Twinmotion Cloud, which lets any member of the team access a project from their web browser without a single download or installation. The project manager can access the model, review it, and immediately give you the feedback anytime from anywhere, says Marco. To download your exclusive free trial, head to twinmotion.link slash trxl that's twinmotion.link slash trxl and now let's get back to our conversation it's interesting to go back to that visual effects thing and i think we touched on this the last time we talked but the idea of what a procedural texture was right like that was very much a a math driven texture and it kind of inhabited 3d space right it was it was very interesting from a textural, a texturing point of view where you're not applying something to an object, like the object passed through space in which this procedural, uh-huh. it's, so it's, it's actually hard for me to explain. You could probably do it a lot better than I could, but, but it was like, you didn't have to think about it. You just applied it and you set a scale and it was done in many regards, rather than having to pick a type of mapping uh, the scale of it, the orientation of it, all these things that you did with kind of conventional texture mapping. And you're mm-hmm. talking about procedural kind of animation strategies applied mm-hmm. to lot, you know, millions of objects or hundreds of thousands of objects in a scene to be able to make their own decisions, you know, which then played out in the computer exactly. on screen yeah. in the rendering over time. So that designing that logic is kind of a really interesting way to frame this. And I think it is something that architects are slower, have definitely been slower to adopt. I think you said 10 years, but it, it seems like there's still so many that just haven't adopted that way of thinking at all. And then I kind of go back to education, right? So like you're there, there definitely are architects who think like that because they are in the, 
the companies that employ some of these techniques or a lot of these techniques already, so they have the exposure to it. But the people who it's hard to convince that this is a worthwhile initiative are the ones who have never been exposed to it in their own industry. What's interesting is they've been exposed to it every time they go to the movies in this instance, but it's never (laughs) kind of deconstructed and explained in a way that makes sense in a way that they can apply it to what they do. So going back to kind of this education and I think where you, how you got into this and how I got into this was very much by our own intrinsic motivation to go to these user group meetings, to stop on your bike and have a conversation with Greg Fleischman. It just happened and it opened a door and to you becoming exposed to this kind of way of thinking. And then you're starting to connect dots between other industries and applying them into AEC now, but even with manufacturers, right? Like they, they can see a direct correlation because they make widgets and these widgets need an interface to be designed. And with feedback, we can make them better and we can iterate on them over and over and over again. But architecture is such a longer process and it's hard to think about that way. And so I think there's so many things kind of working against our industry, AEC in particular, and I think the contractors are doing a better job at it than than architects are for, you know, and I'm generalizing mm. because there's definitely architects who are really, really good at this and they really have adopted this kind of thinking. But, you know, I've I've talked with Ian Keo over at Hypar about this exact thing. And he's like, we we our initial audience was architects, but we decided at some point when they just weren't listening, we're gonna go over to this other industry because they're the ones who who see the value immediately in that. I think that's a wise choice. And it was also Ian saying that, uh, you know, uh, yeah, and I probably don't have enough background to, to make a judgment about that, that architects by themselves might might be a, an endangered uh, breed, let's say, mm. uh, because the, there is that shift, that, that paradigm shift needed. As an architect, if you want to create a complex building nowadays, you have to shift into that designing logic versus the designing shape approach. I mean, it, it's still a combination of both. If you look at, say, the Louis Vuitton building and the Frank Gehry building in Paris, uh, Louis Vuitton building, and we could probably post an image of that as well. Mm-hmm. It's a nuts building. I, I absolutely love it. Some people hate it, of course, but that was clearly, you know, um, creatively directed. And you know how Frank Gehry works. He works with pieces of paper, right? Uh, but to implement all the joints necessary between all the beams, there's no way it's a logic. draftsman yeah. can do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, not, not with Revit, or, but by any stretch, because you've got all these odd angles. <laughs> so, so computational design needs to come into there, and, and you really need to understand the value of that if you want to take the architecture into the next, well, not the next century anymore, but the next, the next generation if you want. Uh, and not even just, uh, we're not even talking about star architecture. We're, we're talking about, you know, uh, doing, creating housing for everybody right and doing it properly and and make buildings that are sustainable and can be managed easily and that sort of stuff these are very complex problems and if if you don't take the step to sort of admitting that you can't do this manually anymore you know directly if you don't admit that uh, there's an element of compute that needs to be included to absorb all the rules and regulations of your local environment um, to to sort of solve all the netly engineering problems without getting massive cost overruns, to make sure that the design is right and buildable, 
that you don't have to go back to design halfway through the build of the project. All of these things require you to take that next mental leap and, and admit that compute needs to be part of the game from the design phase, essentially from the design phase. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking of, of this idea of logic as being more than just a series of steps in series, I, I mean, I guess I redundant mm-hmm. there, series of steps in series, but it's, it's, it's knowledge, it's data, it's risk, it's machine mm-hmm. interface, it's a builder's input. It's encoding all of that information. And I mean, this isn't a show about Hypar, but like that's the idea. It's, it's uh-huh. encoding experience in as well with all these rules because i think one of the important parts to say is what you're yes. talking about is you're talking about scaling because architects with a capital a and especially star architects like that it's one building at one point in time but what we're talking about is architecture at scale we're talking about solving the world's problems not That's just right. not just the elite fuse problems and mm-hmm. In order to get to that point, it's not like you just want to scale output. You actually need to scale experience as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, so to finish my point off about going back to Hypar, like that's the idea. Stop starting with a blank page. Correct. S- start yeah. with this series of functions that are already have already been figured out, and you can just start running immediately. That's the yep. idea there. And so, this mm-hmm. idea of computational logic is so much bigger than I think a lot of people give it credit for. And I'm looking at a particular audience of architecture, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you know, not, not too far advanced of myself with more, a little more gray hair, but it's very much like it's a, it's a narrow field of view that I think there, there are a very narrow lens that they're looking through. And this can be applied in such a bigger way for the betterment of the profession, the industry, the world at large. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So that, that, that idea of embodied knowledge and experience is very important. I mean, we've, so we meandered with Matter Machine, we meandered a, a little bit, and we were working for furniture companies, um, large furniture companies, before we got acquired by Trimble. And you wouldn't believe, I mean, the, the amount of times, so the amount of times that the same cabinet was remodeled from scratch per year because there's tweaks every year it's unbelievable it's like 10 or 20 times mm. and and so what we worked on with them is is just the simple fact of making assemblies easy one but also save them <laughs> what what a mind-blowing concept <laughs> right and and of course we had we had we had some configurations aspect uh thrown in the mix as well um so and this is the concept of that we, we push in my machine is that you have these versionable configurators, right? And the logic, again, is separated out from the geometry. Uh, the logic generates the geometry. So the logic needs to be maintained, not the geometry. You maintain the logic. So the next year, whatever, there's a new material. Just add one node with a new material to, to the logic. Shows up in a dropdown as an extra option. You save the new logic out. That's it. And... Uh, you can get version that if you want, or you can so you, you can do sort of a coding aspect to it, or it's just a versioning system. But you have this traceability of that asset through time, not as geometry, but as logic. And and so that's an important again, this this step that's required. Uh, and understanding that 
the changes that people make every year, those little tweaks that you were talking about before, right, are not at the level necessarily of geometry. They're more at the level of logic. Say, hey, this year I want to switch my boards from this color palette to that color palette, right? Are you going to just re-export all your boards and all the new colors? Um, no, you just modify the logic. Say, you know, I'm going to have uh, remove these two calls, add these two colors to it. That's it. That's the change. That's the change, right? And and so that that's what we're today still uh, very much trying to uh, make happen. So at Trimble, I, I can talk about certain things, of course. That started in the form of what we call live components in SketchUp. So we were our acquisition was championed by uh, the SketchUp group at Trimble. We were specifically after integrating with uh, the 3D warehouse because we, we canvassed the, la- the, the landscape a little bit and we said, okay, how can we build, you know, shortcut our user base, uh, the growth of our, of our user base, right? Uh, so uh, we knew that we were actually, we were not building a parametric modeling system. We were building a content platform uh, because for us, the shift from so modeling directly to modeling the logic is sort of an a means to an end. It's it's to create new content, uh, new types of content. And because the content of tomorrow needs to be configurable. If you think about it, you know, where do you need content nowadays or will will need content tomorrow? And it's in an AR environment. An AR environment uh, by default, because people use it at home, is is a custom environment. You're gonna have to adapt your assets to it, whatever you do, right? So the the picture frame that you put on the wall might have to be sized bigger or smaller depending on which room you're in. Uh, the couch that you put in there might have to be bigger or smaller depending on the room you're in. And so static assets don't cut it anymore in a lot of situations. So you have to go take that step to, to what we call dynamic or smart assets or whatever you want to call par- parametric asset, procedural assets, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Uh, so, so we saw that shift happen and we were like, okay, well, that is what we want to create. We want to create a content platform of dynamic content, smart content, of live content, like we call it right now. And that's exactly what we've done. If you go to Tree Warehouse right now, the top bar on the Tree Warehouse is um, is all live, what we call live components. You can go play around with them. Uh, so you can just uh, you create yourself Trimble account. It's free, and uh, you can just go configure right in the Tree Warehouse right there. So so that was sort of the story behind our Trimble acquisition. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, let's say. <laughs> and we'll leave it right there. <laughs> it's That's it's right. interesting to think about it from like an AR perspective because the traditional perspective, and I think again to kind of get back to the embedded nature of getting stuck where our AEC has is we still think in terms of renderings, right? Mm-hmm. Static renderings that yeah, I deliver yeah. in a PDF, like it's dead document to dead document to dead document, mm-hmm. and. Now it's a very different landscape. And I think COVID even accelerated that where everybody's yeah. working remotely. We do have, you know, cloud compute happening in many different ways now that it was never a big deal before. Now it's like the biggest thing. And it's to the point now where everybody just kind of takes it for granted. But yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is, you know, real time rendering where a client can look wherever they want to look. Okay. But now it's actually fully interactive. It's not even just real time rendering mm-hmm. anymore. It's like swap the color of the wall, move the furniture around, play basketball right. in the, in the court, jump off the high dive <laughs> into the pool. It's all of these things. And it's yeah. delivered remotely in a fully visual environment. And 
Sometimes there's even layers of sound on top of that. And there's so many ways in which we can immerse ourselves into, like my mom got a quest and mm-hmm. she's doing exercise in VR now. And because it's so immersive, it's so different than going into the other room and just turning on the treadmill. It's yeah. a very different experience. That's what we're talking about with the clients of AEC way before the building is is produced and finished so that yeah. they can actually yeah. walk into it. So I think it's really interesting to hear it from your perspective of building tools that people are going to use to, in this case, populate content. But having it be live content is it's really interesting for, you know, and now how do we start to tell that story so that people actually use it in the tools mm-hmm. that they use every day? And what are they going to do with it? Like that to me is what, where things get really interesting when you're building kind of a, a system of encoding logic. It's like, once you create a system of encoding logic, okay. Like grasshopper, right. Great example yep. of this yep. blank canvas. Yep. It's a, it's a recipe that I can throw together in any different way. Did when David Rutten created Grasshopper, did he think people were going to do what they ended up doing with it? I kind of doubt it. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have similar thoughts about the system that you're creating as far as like, uh, you know, seeing seeing the potential that you can't even see right now come to life? And, and that must be a pretty exciting feeling. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, to us, it's, it's fairly obvious that the content of the future is dynamic and for for many many reasons and so that's what we're building by the way yeah there's a couple of points there so the uh you, you mentioned grasshopper and so yeah of course it's, it's fairly similar our, our solution is, is sort of in that same realm uh the genealogy of it of it is quite interesting uh and this, these are unconfirmed uh statements here but uh, the genealogy of it dates back to the vfx tools in the 90s actually so if if you go back well, back in back in mid '80s, Houdini started off as a product called Prisms, then it became Houdini in the '90s, and Maya, the Maya hypergraph, was inspired on on the Houdini sort of node based approach. So it's Everything has a graph, right, yeah. in the visual effects industry. That's right. <laughs> it's incredible. You know, you think about Shake, and you think about what was it like Everything. Autodesk Smoke and Composite, and all these crazy yeah, tools right. that died along the way. But yeah, they all had this node based graph and. Yeah, it's because it is sort of a way to bring programming down to uh, an audience that's five times bigger, Yeah, essentially. Right. It's not pure, pure creatives are still going to struggle with it. Um, but a lot of creators have a technical mind and a lot of technical people have a creative mind. So it, it caters to that sort of midsection, the computational designers, essentially. And, uh, and essentially where you could only kind of leverage pure developers, pure software engineers, initially, now you have an audience that's five times bigger yeah. to do technical things, right? So you capture that. Uh, that that's the magic of, of Grasshopper. And that's why it's got such widespread adoptions because suddenly you don't have to code anymore to do computational design, right? Anyway, so, so yes, genealogy is kind of interesting. Um, and I have to confirm it was with David Rutten. I haven't really uh, had an opportunity to talk to him, but somebody told me that, that Grasshopper was uh, potentially uh, partly inspired by the Maya hypergraph. So that's sort of what the genealogy of it. Interesting. Yeah. Drawing, yeah. drawing lines um, between these products is interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I, I sort of, uh, sorry, I, I lost the thread there. That probably didn't answer your question fully. Um, I don't remember what it was. Re-ask it. <laughs> <laughs> to rewind the tape. It, it, it's, it's, uh, 
it's interesting to think about where this is going with with how people might use the tools and right. kind of seeing that potential unfold in front of you as the developer of a platform on which they would operate to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's very exciting. I mean, one of the end games is search or suggestion. And I'm not saying that's what we're working on uh, Trimble uh, at all. You know, so I'm, I'm not making any statements about, about future products here, but new content enables new types of search, right? So you can, instead of searching a black couch, you can, well, a couch, you can now search for a red couch that's, you know, uh, six feet long, mm-hmm. right? And these searches can be literal. You can literally type it in that way, or it's implicit where you're in an AR environment and the AR environment says, hey, I need a couch that's six feet wide, right? So go get me one, right? And instead of having to only get couches that are six feet-ish from a static library asset, you just have a bunch of dynamic couches that can scale to six feet. Yeah. Of course, these things need to be manufacturable. So the, there's also sort of getting the fabricators along on, on the ride. Getting and their, their for, logic embedded in there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's definitely, in the furniture space, a lot of that going on. Um, but it's much more prominent in the building products sector. Right? Like every sort of building product, if you think of it, is sort of made to, made to order, made to size. A lot of them. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but... It's a large percentage of it. And fabricators are totally set up to make every part different uh, as opposed to every part the same. For them, it's just a slightly, it's a softer problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not a harder problem. You know, if you tell the, compute, the, the, the numerical control machine to make six beams the same or, or six beams different length, it doesn't really matter, right? right. It, it's a softer problem. So that's what we're trying to solve. We're trying to so- solve the softer part of it. Away from just having you know pretty pictures in a browser uh, for you know consumers to look at, to to actually ha- doing that plus delivering uh, a fabricatable model on the other end, right? So that that's sort of still the goal. It's interesting to me to think about something you said earlier and to take it a little further. And I, I don't remember the exact words you used, but you talked about kind of this endangered species aspect of architects, right? <laughs> I quoted uh, Ian on that one. Yeah, so so that <laughs> I think maybe wrongly. Well, the the idea here that you're, and it, I think it's happening in lots of different ways, right? We talk about the democratization of these tools. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Who, you don't care who actually ends up using them as a no. the toolmaker, and so it's like with with what Ian did. He went to the architects first and was like, "Here's our wares. What do you think?" And the interest was low. Let's just say it was low okay, well, I'm going to go somewhere and it's like other and a different audience snatched it right up. I think the time, the type of thing that you're talking about and SketchUp has done this forever, right? Like, mm-hmm. so Trimble is, it, obviously they didn't own SketchUp when it started, but they're no stranger to this, which is SketchUp doesn't care who buys SketchUp. They don't just make a tool for architects. Nobody is saying to any architect, even Autodesk, you need to show us your license before you can purchase the software. And I think that that is something that architects have to remember, mm-hmm. which is like you're talking about a fully configurable couch in this case that has the cons- the fabrication logic built in as well as all the different potential options of what that color and shape could be yep. within a certain am- num- amount of reason, right? Like there's mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. there are constraints. The constraints are designed into the logic. Okay, within the constraints. Yep. There are any number of potential outputs. 
none of which require an architect. Correct, yeah. That is very, that to me is is one of the most interesting statements regarding mm. all these tools is yep. nobody cares about your license. Nobody cares about, because if we, so you have to find another way to add value to the system. And you already possess it, but you don't necessarily express it or expose it on the surface very well. And it's mm. kind of interesting to think about because a building is an assembly of parts. Somebody else makes every single one of those parts, right? Yeah, yeah, and they do yeah, need to yeah. work together into assemblies and they do need to work with the code. And like that's where the architect is kind of the orchestrator of all this stuff. And they do yep. take something that is a very foggy idea in the beginning mm-hmm. and turn it into a reality at the end. And they do yep. help orchestrate and conduct all those moving parts and the different streams in which they go. And they're also comparing it to code and permit review and constructability and sequencing. And they're thinking about all this stuff, but it is not in how those parts actually get produced. It is not in the configuration. Of, it's like this, this is the kind of thing that, that architects really should be grappling with. So yep. it's interesting to think about. Yeah, and, and that that very much mirrors the process in BFX as well. Again, just just to bring it back to that again. So the, we had a concept of digital assets, where, uh, for example, build a digital asset to create lava, digital lava. Right, digital lava is a fundamentally complex physical simulation, um, a fluid dynamic simulation. An animator that wants to create a shot with digital lava is, is not going to want to care about whatever the the row factor or whatever it is. Right. The, the, you know, uh, they just want to be able to plonk this thing into an environment, say, this is what it needs to collide with. This is general direction I want it to be. So you give the animator those controls, but all the rest you obfuscate, right? And it's very similar in, in the construction industry. You you The architect might only need to know sort of the physical dimensions of things and where things connect to some other things. But all the underlying physics, the flow factor of, a, of, of say, a, an HVAC system, uh, all of that needs to be solved for them without them even knowing it, yeah, right? right. Uh, and more and more that needs to happen into the design phase uh, to avoid, uh, you know, clashes further down the line, iterations uh, in the middle of the build. So so where we were sort of closing the divide between consumer experiences and fabrication shops back in the matter machine days, now it's really just trying to close the gap between the design and the build uh, phase, right? Uh, making sure that whatever gets done in the design phase uh, ports really well to the, the engineering structures and maintenance phase even uh, longer term, right? By the way, fantastic little book about this, and I just remember this, um, something that inspired me a lot was by a science fiction writer called Bruce Sterling. You know Bruce Sterling? The name sounds familiar, but I can't right. recall. Um, Bruce Sterling, I follow him on Twitter. He's just like so plugged in. It's crazy. And uh, the book was called Shaping Things. Uh, it's a tiny little book get it and what it talks about is a concept what he calls spine <laughs> it's just a totally coined word but basically what what it means is that i might, might be able to look it up here quickly hold on can you spell that spine s-p-i-m-e okay 
So a guide to the next wave of technology, an era of objects so programmable that they can be regarded as material instantiations of an immaterial system. Wow. So, so basically it's saying uh, that the digital, the digital twin, if you want, but it's not really a digital twin. It's a digital version of the object is now more important than the physical instantiation of it. And so everything that happens to the physical instantiation, the copy that you made of the digital, the physical copy you made of the digital template, if you want, um, uh, using sensors and all sorts of other uh, ways of gathering information about it makes it back to the, yeah. the digital version of it. It's a snapshot of the digital, which is which is a living yeah. document, right? So Correct. then using Correct. it as a tool yeah. to reinform the digital version as it That's iterates. Right. Yeah. And so th- this was actually at the source of, of Matter Machine as well. Uh, I remember I made a concept image, a picture, and I called it the Facebook for things, I think I called it. Um, so, so basically, it's, you know, every time there's a, a thing being instantiated into physical um, space, you'd have a sort of a Facebook-like page for it, and it would track the object through its lifetime. It's like right? a timestamp so of a snapshot yep. or something, yeah. So, for example, things that were on there on, on the Facebook stream were uh, sort of the, the design plans, right? So kind of in an open source world, you, in the maker world, you would have designs for it. Then there were those pictures of the manufacturing. And you see this today, by the way. People put cameras on their 3D printers. So you have pictures of the manufacturing. Then you have shipping and delivery uh, sort of uh, data. Uh, then you have instructions for maintenance, and then you can literally post about your object or your object posts for itself or using it's, whatever yeah. IOT or, or so you have all these posts there. And then it also follows the object across ownership. So if it changes ownership, people sell secondhand stuff. It, it just tracks the object across ownership. And then ultimately it also gives you instructions for disposal and, and um, sort of end of life uh, instructions. So that, that comes out of shaping things in that little book. Wow. Uh, and he he has sort of this idea of, I think he called it Amazon.org, not Amazon.com, but Amazon.org, where, where all these, these Facebook pages would, would be hosted. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. yeah. No, thanks for that recommendation. That sounds fantastic. So it seems to me, like, start wrap things up here with you guys being acquired by Trimble, there is an ability to scale beyond what you could have done as a smaller team right like that to me is where mm-hmm. obviously there's an audience already embedded with trimble products but also with i think i would imagine is some horsepower behind what you're doing to kind of get it out to larger audiences and and in my hopes would predicate meaningful change in the industry there's only mm-hmm. a couple of companies <laughs> out there that have the ability to, to do that. And, and it sounds pretty exciting that, cause this isn't just like, I'm hoping this isn't just features on top of already existing, you know, platforms that have been around for 20 plus years. I'm, I'm hoping mm. that this is, these actually are paradigm kind of shifting. They make their way back into the education system so that it changes the way people think about this stuff. So, because that, you know, obviously adoption is the hardest part. And, right, right. and especially when it comes to new new paradigms and new ideas like this. So are you thinking in those terms? Um, I, I assume you are just because you, you decided to go on the ride with them. But but what does an acquisition by Trimble enable you to do kind of big picture thinking? Hmm. 
Well, there's obviously the practical aspect to it. I don't have to run a startup anymore, which is, you've talked to enough uh, founders. It's, it's a very stressful business. But, but I have to say, Trimble is just the best home for a technology ever. I have zero regrets about, about selling, selling at the point where, where we did and selling to Trimble and selling to the particular uh, division that we did. It's an absolutely no bullshit company. We're not sort of out there. I mean, people know SketchUp, obviously, but people, a lot of people will stay, still say Google SketchUp, right? right? They don't actually know it's owned by Trimble. But, but uh, well, you know, do a bit of research on Trimble. They, mm-hmm. they're, they're in like s- super interesting sectors. So geospatial, so everything with hardware, uh, GPS tracking. They have business in transport, agriculture, all to sort of optimize using, optimize processes uh, using uh, tracking technology. And then they have this whole you know, construction division, right? Which, which if you look at their acquisitions of the past uh, 10, 20 years, very clever acquisitions, if I say so myself. <laughs> but um, just really interesting. And, and I'll, I'll let your users uh, you know, do the research and, and uh, make their own conclusions. But you, you'll see that we have very interesting portfolio. You know? People might know SketchUp very well. Other people might know Tecla, which is sort of a um, structures and engineering uh, applications, you know, p- absolute powerhouse. We've got in the civil space, we got Quadri, which just launched in the States right now. And we're sitting on all this MEP content. Uh, this is not something people readily know unless you're in the space, but mechanical, electric, and plumbing content. Um, this, this, we're sitting on this massive amount of data there. Um, so, anyway, it, I'll let you piece the parts of the puzzle together but yeah there's watch the space it's it's a really interesting company to work for yeah absolutely add to that uh the acquisition of gary technologies right which came out yes came out of absolutely gary's office and Mm -hmm. that kind of that stealth group that goes around we used to go around i don't know if they still do this or not um we have some mutual friends uh there still i guess they're not they're actually trimble now but but yeah they used to go around and and just kind of be ninja teams on these world famous mm-hmm. architectural projects all over the place. So really yeah, interesting yeah. stuff going on in that realm as well. And, and, and like the zero 60 accelerator, I had Lucas Reams on the podcast earlier on. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was a student of mine at Cal Poly, but uh, he and, and German running the zero 60 accelerator program, which is all about creating a space where innovation can happen. I mean, and so I think mm-hmm. that there are Trimble does seem to be kind of hitting at all of these different levels that you're talking about. And that is pretty mm-hmm. exciting when you think about the ability that they then have um, below the surface to connect these things together and make yep. some really mm-hmm. interesting advances happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm still very excited, more excited day by day to work for this company. It's a, it's a joy. And uh, yeah, again, watch the space. <laughs> we will. So, so, Thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. It's been a fascinating conversation going back to the the visual effects. And I mean, I mm-hmm. just, I can't imagine, you know, there's, there would have been no way for you to see how you got to where you are now from where mm-hmm. you were. Right. And I think the same of myself. So I think in some way we're a little bit kindred spirits there and absolutely not that, yeah. not that that's a pretty typical story, but to watch kind of this evolution through visual effects and what you learn there and are able to apply it to matter machine. And now what you're doing at Trimble is really, really cool. Is there anything you want to 
leave for our audience where they could follow along with what you're doing or any any links that you want them? I'll include all of the things that we talked about in the show notes, but if there's anything Sorry. in addition to, I'd love it if our if the audience could follow you online and and if there's anything else that you wanted to plug. Uh, honestly, I'm not a very prolific uh, tweeter, Twitter. I don't even know. And uh, I, w- I would say, uh, so the, win- the best window to look into what we're doing right now is, is live components in SketchUp. And um, yeah, just go to Tree Warehouse, the top bars, all live components and play around with them and, and, and follow us there. We, we have a couple of channels that we spun up. So we rebranded uh, while at Trimble our product to Materia. So Materia is um, basically like material, but without the L. We spun up a couple of social channels around that, but it's just super early days. So we just launched, so this is pretty empty as well. But you can definitely watch that. I'll, I'll send you some links. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to see what you guys do because I know that this is just a tease. This top bar on the 3D Warehouse website. <laughs> this has got to. This is this is not the the big. This is how you are getting toward the big picture. So I'm excited to see the developments that you guys come out with. And, and again, thank you for spending the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Thanks so much, Evan. Thank you to Twinmotion for their support of this episode of Troxel Podcast. You can visit twinmotion.link slash TRXL, or I've made it easy for you. Just click the link in the show notes and download your copy of Twinmotion for free. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon.